the passage which we will be looking at this morning starts at Romans chapter 14 and ends in chapter 15 verse 6. Read by Marin Hansen. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister, or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace, and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. 
each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance, taught in the scriptures, and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Thanks, Marion. Well, let's um, bring our prayers to the Lord now before we look at that passage in more detail and Mark comes to, to preach. Let's pray. Lord God, we've just read of how Christ died and returned to life so that he might be both Lord of the living and the dead. That one day we will all stand before your judgment seat. But we thank you that that day should not fill us with a sense of fear or dread because as we put our trust in Jesus, he, we will not stand there defending ourselves, but letting him intercede for us on the basis of what he's done for us. His sacrifice on the cross, meaning that we have already been acquitted and we can come before your throne of grace with confidence. And as we rejoice in our freedom, Lord, we pray that it would cause us not to judge others or to cause them to stumble. We pray that we will be seeking to make every effort to do what leads to, to peace, to mutual edification. As we pray for next Thursday's members meeting, we, as we discuss and pray and make decisions on issues to do with the life of the church, we do pray that you'd help us to listen to one another, to listen to you. Would you pray that will be a time for encouragement and, and building up. We pray about the elders retreat next weekend and ask for your wisdom as we consider the vision for the church for the, for the year ahead and the future. We pray that you'd fill us with gratitude for all your blessings that we've experienced this past year and an excitement for all that lies ahead. And Lord, we pray for your work around the world. We do pray this morning for the hearers as they worship with Christians in Ghana, as they continue to celebrate the publication of the, the Kassem Bible. And we do pray that as people receive the Bible in their own language, they would read it, they would understand it, and their lives would be changed as a result. Pray for others, Lord, who are struggling with different issues, maybe with stress and worry in the the workplace or in the home and pray that you grant them encouragement and strength. Lord, we pray that the financial gifts that we have made towards the work of this church would serve to help many others hear the gospel to respond in faith and be built up in their knowledge of you. And finally, we pray for Mark as he opens up your word to us this morning that what he has to say would come directly from you, that you would speak into our hearts and It'll be useful for building us up as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I wonder what you were thinking when that passage was read. Um, thank you, Marion. Uh, if you were thinking, what is all that about? Uh, vegetables and food and how's that going to help me? Um, exactly how I felt a week ago. Um, but we need God's help because it's not an easy passage, but it's a really important one for helping us uh, as a church. Um, so before we come to it, I want to read a verse from the book of Hebrews. Um, you can just listen to it, but it, it's a really helpful verse that helps us to understand what's going on when we open the Bible together. It's in chapter 4 of Hebrews, and it says, 
The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's the power of God's word. So let's pray that his power be at work now and that he would help all of us to understand some of the difficult things in this great chapter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the quietness of this moment, I pray that you would still our hearts and our minds. You would help us to put out of our minds all that might be distracting, all that might be worrying us. And please help us by the power of your spirit to understand all that this amazing chapter has to teach us. I pray that none of us would leave here unchanged this morning, but you would do your work in our hearts. Amen. I just want to put a, a picture up. Uh, I, I sometimes feel like uh, church is a bit like um, a baby at messy play playing in a, a, a bathtub of baked beans. Uh, what I mean by that, um, church at one level is, is full of joy, isn't it? I, when I look around this room and I see all of us, different ages, stages, backgrounds, cultures, uh, I think it's a great joy that we all come together um, and there's something that unifies us. Uh, it's a joy that maybe this little baby's enjoying, like being in this tub of baked beans. Yet, it's not just joy that that baby's experiencing. They're also uh, doing something that's very messy. And just as church can be full of joy, church can be messy, can't it? We can get hurt in church. Uh, we can have misunderstandings in church. There's often fr- frustrations and tension. Even though when we come to trust in Christ, the Bible describes us as being new creations. Um, that's a spiritual reality. We still all come with different backgrounds, different temperaments, uh, different experiences that shape the way we think. That's just normal. Um, and so being at church can be a bit like a baby playing in a uh, tub of, of baked beans. It's full of joy, but it's messy. That's just a reality for every church. But this kind of unity in diversity is actually a God-given gift to us. You think about the Godhead, God who exists as Father, Son, and spirit, there is a tri-unity, a trinity. And even within the very nature and character of God is this unity and diversity. And as a church, one of God's purposes is that we seek to reflect in part his character. And our church is full of unity and diversity. And there can be a real challenge between the two at times. But do you notice at the end of this reading, go to the, uh, chapter 15, verse 6, which is sort of the end of the reading... Paul's purpose in the chapter we're going to look at is that we would have one mind and one voice and that together we would glorify God. So your response to the balance between one and two, the kind of joy of life and the messiness of life that can frustrate and be difficult, your response to that partly will be a function of your temperament. We're all wired differently and we all respond differently. Uh, Partly a function of Christian maturity. Uh, But we all need to pray for real grace, don't we? grace in our relationships because relationships with people are difficult and this is what this chapter is doing it's helping us when we respond to difference but so before we come to chapter i just want to help us with three things that i believe will help us to get into this chapter to do that we have to just look back uh, remember chapter 12 um i described worship a couple of weeks ago as all about giving our lives away that our whole lives should be shaped by grace Remember chapter 13, the first part was all about relating um, to external authority. 
Uh, it was more about relationships with people outside of the church primarily, though it has implications for authority within the church. You then get into chapter 14, and the focus changes, not so much relating to people out there, but more relating to each other in here. But it's all applying the principle of Romans chapter 12, which is that grace is meant to cut through all of our relationships. Now remember I took us to chapter 13, verse 10, where Paul declared, love is the fulfillment of the law. And I tried to help us to see that that word fulfillment doesn't mean the end. Paul's not saying love is the end of the law. Just love everyone and forget God's commands. That word fulfill is more about um, the purpose. So the purpose of God's commands is love. Notice too, verse 14 of chapter 13, I I gave the illustration where Paul says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said, look, if I cover myself in a black cloak, what do you see? A guy wearing a black cloak. If I wear a Batman outfit, what do you see? An idiot. Uh, If I clothe myself in Christ, what do you see? We pray that you see Christ. That's the point that Paul is trying to get at. So first thing, just to bear in mind as we come to this chapter, remember that everything that comes in 13 and 14 is driven from chapter 12, which is all about grace cutting through all of our relationships and the way we relate to other people. Second thing is a mistake I think we often make. Um, The New Testament is very much more corporate than we like to believe. Often we think of it's my relationship with God, and yet so much of the New Testament is about my relationship with other Christian believers and about how our relationship together reflects God. Uh, So many of the yous in the New Testament are plural. And so, as you come to this chapter, think about the corporate nature of what this is teaching. Not just you, but how you relate this way, and how we together relate to God. And last thing, uh, you have to just take it from me, because I don't want to go into all the detail for sake of time. This passage is full of emphatics. If you're into your grammar, that is words that come with real force and meaning. And they're all over this chapter. So, whatever Paul's doing with this chapter, he's clearly trying to speak with real force, because... This stuff really matters. Okay, so just bear those things in mind. Uh, but four things, I'm just going to look at four things in this passage because it's uh, complicated, there's lots in it. Four things this morning that will help us in this kind of joyful but messy life that we live in church. And the first one is this recognize that we have, I was going to leave that out. Recognize that we all have different consciences. Uh, someone in the 17th century described your conscience as God's law court within you. Have a think about that. Your conscience is something that God uses to affirm or accuse you in the decisions that you're making. Uh, One of the things the Bible teaches is that every human being made in the image of God has a conscience. But all sorts of things can happen in our life that can shape our conscience, that can affect the way that our conscience works in our life. Is our conscience going to accuse us over an action, or is it going to affirm that action? Well, we'll all differ. Uh, This passage, just to help us, this passage is not speaking about when we differ over core biblical truths for which the Bible speaks really clearly. So this is an excuse, this chapter, to sort of think, well, I think this about something that actually the Bible speaks clearly on, and uh, I've just got freedom to believe what I like. This is a chapter that particularly addresses areas in our life that aren't necessarily so clear, particularly in how truth works out in application, okay? That's what this chapter is about. So I want to give you a little extended illustration. I'm going to take you back to Rome 2,000 years ago, and I want to imagine you're having a picnic, okay? At this picnic, there is a Greek man. He's, a, uh, he's not a Jew. He's become a Christian. He's put his trust in Christ. Uh, there's also at this picnic a, gen, uh, a Jewish Christian. 
So this is someone, again, who's put their trust in Christ, but has a Jewish background, a Jewish heritage, a Jewish culture. And when they put their trust in Jesus, not all of their Jewishness is left behind. Rather like each of you, when you've come to put your trust in Christ, you haven't left behind your previous life and everything that's different. We bring to our relationship with God all sorts of things that have shaped and molded our character. Now, the Greek Christian uh, believes that it's okay to eat anything. And so there they are at the picnic, and they've got a bacon sandwich, okay? Beautiful bacon sandwich. It's dripping with the butter and all the juices in the bacon. I can see you salivating. If you want to make a, marmite, a bacon sandwich better, stick a bit of marmite in it, a little tip. So here's this uh, Greek Christian. He's eating his bacon sandwich, and then along comes his Jewish friend, and he hands some to his Jewish friend, and his Jewish friend turns his nose up at this bacon sandwich. I couldn't possibly eat that. Well, then they've got a problem. This Greek Christian sort of feels that their Jewish Christian friend has kind of said no to their hospitality, doesn't want to enjoy the bacon sandwich with them. And they've got a reason for that. We're free, we can eat what we like. Why are you still continuing to observe certain laws? But the Jewish Christian knows something about the meat in that bacon. Maybe that the meat would have been used in that sandwich. It had been previously used um, in sacrifice to idols, um, fake gods, and then later sold on a market. Now, in itself, there's nothing wrong with the meat. The gods don't even exist. But because of the association with that meat that had been used previously to worship false gods and then was sold in the market, the Jew doesn't feel comfortable. So you see, they've got completely different understandings of something. So hang a bit of a Barney. Along comes another Christian who's a bit older, perhaps a bit wiser, and seeks to help them. And he's trying to help them to see that they can actually have different understandings on an issue and there's a way to love each other. Look at what the wise Christian would say. Chapter 14, verse 1. He'd come to these two people at the picnic who are having a bit of a Barney and he'd say to them, accept one another. That phrase isn't saying uh, bear with each other, grudgingly put up with each other. Oh, I've got these Christians and I struggle in church to put up with people who are different to me and through gritted teeth I love them because they're my brothers and sisters in Christ but it's really hard. It's actually saying welcome them. Love them. Notice verse 13, it says, stop passing judgment on one another. And then verse 19, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. A phrase that really means to build people up. And why? Twice in the chapter, verse 10 and verse 15, Paul describes fellow Christians as brothers and sisters. You look around this room, those who here who are trusting in Christ, if you are trusting in Christ, they're your brother and your sister. They're not just another person who happens to be in this church that you've got to grudgingly love. God has rescued them. They're your brother and your sister, even if you find them difficult. And we looked at chapter 15, verse 5, didn't we? That unity is something that gives God glory. Let me give you a couple of examples of this, because uh, the whole food thing may not really relate to our culture. So let me ground this. Uh, films. There's no prohibition in Scripture that you should not watch films. There's lots to say in Scripture about the things that we allow our eyes to think about and see and how like, it can influence us. But when you're thinking about films, what's unhelpful to one person may be less unhelpful to another. We're just different. And if one person finds one film really unhelpful... It's not necessarily right for them just to say to another Christian, therefore you shouldn't see this. We've all got to work things out for ourselves. There are areas of ambiguity and freedom. The principles are there in Scripture about what we feast our eyes on, but there's no prohibition in Scripture, don't watch X film. I'm not talking about X-rated film, A film. That's probably not, that's probably not going to be helpful. Uh, alcohol, a similar one. There's nothing in Scripture that says you cannot drink alcohol. 
But there's plenty in scripture that teaches about drunkenness and the danger of alcohol. And every Christian has a different conscience on this. Lots of Christians in other cultures don't touch alcohol ever. And it's not right for someone who has freedom to be able to drink alcohol to say to that Christian, it's ridiculous that you don't drink. But equally, it's not right for the person who doesn't drink to say to the person who does, and you shouldn't, because it's an area of freedom, exercised within parameters God gives. Uh, Last one, Sundays. I think this is slightly different in that I do believe the Bible has more to say about Sabbath and rest and the implications of that than probably a lot of us would like to believe. I'm not going to go into that now. Uh, But a big one at the moment, um, sport on Sunday. Some people would say it's really unhelpful to play sport on Sunday. They may have good reasons for that. Others would have complete freedom. There's nothing wrong with playing sport on Sunday. A lot of it's to do with how you work out what Sabbath means today. But there is some sense of freedom in that debate. Some would perhaps disagree. But the point is, we all have slightly different understandings sometimes on areas that aren't always really, really clear, even if they make it be clear to us. Notice chapter 14, verse 5. Paul says, One person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers an every day alike. But here's the key. Each of you should be fully convinced in your own mind. Now I'm going to come on to explain what that doesn't mean later, because it could be abused. But I want us to help us to understand what Paul means when he refers in this chapter to the weak and the strong. Uh, do you see that in uh, chapter 14, verse 1? Except uh, the one whose faith is weak. Uh, that weak word, it's not a reference to someone who has a weak trust in Christ, who sort of lacks assurance. And it's nothing to do with Christian character, kind of weak Christian character. Nothing to do with that. It's not a kind of spiritual version of this, a kind of spiritual giant and a spiritual weed. I mean, you look at verse 2, there's a bit of comedy in there. Uh, That's not saying that vegetarians are immature Christians. Have a look at verse 2. It's not saying that. Um, I might argue that vegetarians might be less happy Christians, but that's just my opinion, because I'm a carnivore. The word weak here is not referring to Christian character or, or strength of trust in God. The weakness here is more speaking about a person's conviction of the implications of their faith. So you put your trust in Jesus, but then you're having to work out what does this look like in different areas of life. And some people have done a lot of thinking and they have freedom in all sorts of areas. Others have a really sensitive conscience and they haven't yet worked out of their mind what do they really think about these different things. Uh, Some people have a weak conscience. Often it's very young Christians because you're still working out what does my faith really look like in all these different areas. Actually, sometimes people who are very mature Christians can have particularly sensitive consciences because God has been at work in their life, teaching them different things. And perhaps they know God's word a little better and and therefore are able to discern perhaps a little more clearly than others what is honouring to God and what isn't. So it's not simply weak in this passage is the mature Christian or the weak uh, of the immature Christian. It's speaking about freedom and sensitivities. One person's conscience gives freedom on a particular issue. Another person's conscience constrains them. And Paul just acknowledges this is what it is. He doesn't argue that one is better than the other. He just says this is Christian life. So first thing I want us to grasp is that all Christians will have a different conscience. Indeed, every human being have a differing conscience. Second thing, and quite briefly, but this will help us, remember that Jesus Christ is Lord of everything. Do you see verse 9? It talks about him being Lord of both the dead and the living. And in verse 10, it goes on, the second half, uh, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. And then he quotes from Isaiah 45, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess or acknowledge God. 
Now, Isaiah 45, is a, in its context, is an appeal that God makes to the whole world, with all their differences, appealing to the world to turn back to him uh, for forgiveness and to be reconciled to him. But what the chapter is really doing is God is declaring, there's only one Lord, and it's not you. There's only one judgment seat, and it's not yours. It's really a chapter that helps us understand God is God and I'm not God. And therefore, it really matters the way that we relate to each other. Look at verse 12. And this is an example of a sentence where almost every word is an emphatic, really, really clear. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So what Paul is trying to help us to do is see that I shouldn't make decisions because somebody else is living in judgment over me. I need to have a conscience that stands before God. He is the one one day I will answer to. And I have to make my decisions based on his lordship, not on the opinions of other people. Because God is lord of everything, he sees everything. And one thing he always sees is the way that we relate to each other. And it really, really matters to him. And that's why we really need to think about our relationships in church. So two things there. We all have different consciences. And remember that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the third thing is that this passage then puts those two things together. It says, let the Lordship of Christ shape or educate your conscience and then listen to it. I think one of the most important qualities of any person, if you want to be a person who keeps growing, is to have a teachable spirit. I think that's important for all of us. Uh, We must never think, I'm there, I've got nothing to learn. We all need to be teachable. And one of the things that can be taught in our life is our conscience. Our conscience can be educated. God's spirit can be at work in our conscience to enable us to think differently. This is where I said I I want to give a little warning later on so we don't abuse one of the things. Remember chapter 14, verse 5 said, Each of you must be fully convinced in your own mind. But the freedom that Paul is speaking of here over particular issues is not an excuse just to say, well... I believe this, and I believe it very sincerely, and and so you have no right to judge me over this. Because you could believe something very sincerely, but be sincerely wrong. And so the point is, you need to allow God to be at work by his spirit to shape your conscience, remembering he's Lord of everything. Because the way that your conscience works in your life to affirm a decision or to condemn a decision will make a huge difference to how you live your life in relation to God and in relation to other people. Just have a look at chapter 14, verse 6. This is the thing that may really help us. Paul says, Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Then he says in chapter 14, verse 14, notice it doesn't say, Paul, I am convinced that nothing is unclean in itself. What does he say? I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord, that nothing is unclean. In other words, the anchor point for Paul's use of his freedom isn't his own opinion. It's God's word and lordship. And as God is lord of our life, his lordship will shape our conscience so that we begin to make decisions in line with God's will. But the problem is our consciences can be seared. We can become so hardened towards God that we never hear his voice at all. Our consciences can become defiled in the sense that we're no longer really aware of what is right and wrong and we end up making mistakes without even realising it. So I hope we're beginning to see, take your conscience that may vary, take God's lordship, lord of all of us, put the two together and let his lordship help you and shape your conscience for the decisions you make. That's really important. 
But finally, how do we bring all this together? And this is the key thing. Our relationships, all of our relationships, should be marked by grace. Go back to that Roman picnic. There you've got that Gentile Christian who is looking down his nose in a bit of pride at the Jewish Christian, saying, I cannot believe that you won't eat my bacon sandwich. And has been quite judgmental in a proud way. But equally, there's a danger that the Jewish Christian is almost judging the Gentile Christian, saying, well, you're a bit worldly. Have you ever experienced that in, in relationships with people? One person looks down at you very proud. The next person looks at you, you're very worldly. But the problem is, both people at that picnic were in different ways failing to love each other. Have a look at chapter 14, verse 3. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. What Paul is saying is, it's never right to force someone to do something against their conscience. That's not saying there's not a place in the Christian life for rebuke, or for challenge, or for loving instruction. But in areas of freedom, it's never right to push our conscience on someone else because they are answerable to God just as you and I are and it's not right for me to be Lord in their life telling them what they can and can't do my job is to point them to Jesus and let him challenge them on what they can and cannot do and so you see it there in verse 13 don't you Uh, Paul's quite challenging he says don't put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of your brother or sister and then in end of 15 he says do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. He's not there um, giving a rule of conduct, do this. He's more giving a principle of how we can show concern for other people. And it's really important we think this through. So think of that word stumbling block in verse 13. What he's saying is we've got to be very careful how we exercise our freedom because it's perfectly possible as a Christian to do the right thing but to do it the wrong way. It's very true, possible as a Christian, to say the right thing to someone, but to say it in the wrong way. And that can be hugely unhelpful for people. It can even be very damaging. Uh, I often quote Martin Luther, uh, the famous reformer from the 16th century. Uh, He wrote a brilliant book called The Freedom of a Christian in 1520. Liberated from uh, being a monk and, and feeling he had to sort of keep all these rules to please God, he had the most wonderful grasp of the grace of God. And his opening line in this brilliant book on the freedom of a Christian is this A Christian is most free. But then he goes on and says, But a Christian is servant of all. And he really gets to the heart of what this passage is about. You may be free in Christ, but don't use your freedom in a way that will harm other Christians. We're all different, and we need to learn to love each other in our difference. You know that verse uh, 15, which says, uh, don't, by your eating, which was the example in the passage, uh, don't destroy someone for whom Christ has died. Destroying someone is the very opposite of verse 19, the building up or the mutual edification. I'll say it again, we can be right over an issue, but wrong in the use of our freedom to explain that issue. And so it's really important as Christians that we're loving in the way that we help each other to grow. If you were here last night, um, Alfie, my friend who was uh, speaking, he was talking about God's heart for you. He was talking about how God wants to change our hearts to make him more like himself. God is really in the business of changing all of us. And part of that is his spirit being at work in our life to shape and mold our conscience. 
But we've got to remember as Christians, we're all in different places. Some here are very mature Christians, some are very young Christians. Some have come from a particular church background, others from another. Some have very clear convictions on certain issues, others don't. But we're all different and God is at work in each of us individually. We're not all clones of each other. We don't all move at the same pace as each other. We're not all in the same places. And when we look around a room like this, we need to accept that God is working in each of us. And not put a stumbling block in the way of another Christian who God is doing something in. Even if it's a very long journey and it causes great frustration. We mustn't allow that person to be harmed through our use of our freedom. So take the very sensitive person. Um, the very sensitive person, you may say to them that it's wrong to judge the strong, the person who has great freedom. But the person who has great freedom might have something to learn about the instructions and commands of God. But if you're that very sensitive person, rejoice in the freedom that your Christian brother or sister has over a particular issue. Or you may be that very free person who, who doesn't have that sensitive conscience and feels very free in certain areas, but don't judge the weak. Perhaps they have something more to learn about how the grace of God works out in their life. But don't judge them for it. Just rejoice that they have a conscientious spirit. Rejoice that that is their way of helping them to love other people and love God more. I think one of the most practical and best ways that we can love each other in the church is when we think somebody else is wrong. That's the best way to love someone, when we don't agree with them. And then is the point when we can seek to really love them. I'll give you a couple of examples before I close. Just this week, I was having breakfast with a friend of mine in the village. Um, he goes to a church from a different denomination. They're battling with some uh, issues about whether or not to stay in this particular church. It wouldn't be right for someone else to come along and tell that person what to do. I was trying to encourage this couple, make your mind up yourself before God who is your Lord. What's the best place for you to be? Uh, money is another one. Uh, some people would have great freedom in particular areas to use money in a particular way. Uh, others would have a really sensitive conscience that the use of money in that way might be wasteful or not a good use of money. It's a very sensitive subject money, isn't it? We need to give freedom to each other. I think particularly if you're very wealthy, um, it's not simply a question of, I feel in my conscience it's fine to spend my money on X. You also need to think about what does the way that you use your money, what impact does that have on other people? It's not just about your conscience, it's about theirs too. And of course it can work the other way. But there's a, a practical example of ways in which we can think about the way that we love each other. But as I come to a close... I guess the big thing that this chapter teaches us is that to love like this is not easy, is it? Have a look at chapter 15, verse 3. I think this is one of the greatest understatements in the history of the world. Uh, it's a quotation from Psalm 69. It says this, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. The you there is God the Father, the me there is God the Son. And what this uh, psalm is saying is that all of humanity's contempt towards God ultimately fell on his Son on the cross. There's no one who's ever lived and walked on this planet who's been mi more misunderstood than Jesus. There's no one on this planet who's given up more rights than Jesus. But the amazing thing is he did it to serve other people. Who's the person who has the greatest right to stand on his rights? It's Jesus. 
And yet he was the one who went to the cross and surrendered his rights to love and serve other people. And verse 4 teaches us that as we reflect on Christ and all that he's done for us through the encouragement of the scriptures, this is what will give us encouragement and hope. I've got no right to stand on my freedom and my rights if I fail to love and serve those around me for whom God has loved perfectly and whom God is working in. I need to use my freedom to help my Christian brothers and sisters to grow to love him more. So I want to end with verse 7. And perhaps this could be something you reflect on now as we have a time of quiet before we close in song. Pulling all of these chapters together, Paul then says in chapter 15, verse 7, Accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Why don't you just take a moment to reflect on how that challenges you and where you're at. Lord God and Heavenly Father, our diversity as a church is a source of great joy and yet it so often can be a source of great tension and frustration too. Please would you forgive us when we have exercised the freedom perhaps we enjoy and have been a stumbling block to others. Forgive us when we've made mistakes or hurt people. Help us too to be fast to forgive others who have hurt us or where we've been misunderstood. But I pray that you would help us to continue to think through this whole area of conscience and how the freedom that you have given us, which will be in different degrees depending on where we're at with you and how you've taught us through the years, our backgrounds. Please help us in our differences to love one another to accept one another just as Christ has accepted us and that this would be in praise to God. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ did not stand on his rights, yet you surrendered all that was worthily yours to love and to serve those that you long to be your people. As we think about uh, all that you've done for us on the cross, the forgiveness that you have won for us, but also the resurrection life and new power through your spirit that you have borne for us. Please help each of us as we continue to learn and grow as Christians to do so in a way that will help those around us to continue to learn and grow too. I pray for a real spirit of unity in our church. Help us to stand strong on things that can't be discussed, things that are very clearly truth in scripture. Help us to be bold and to stand on gospel truths without any compromise, no matter what the cost. But Lord, in areas of conscience where we'll have different understandings, help us not to judge each other, but help us to point each other to you and give freedom to one another to be answerable to you and allow your spirit to work in us in your timing. Thank you for all that this chapter has taught us and may it continue to help us in the week ahead as we continue to live together as a diverse group of people but united around the gospel. And we praise this for the sake of Jesus. Amen.